You're listening to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Follow the show on social media and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Now, here's Jason and Paul. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is Paul Gillieri. All right, Paul, here we are, just on the heels of the 25th anniversary of Yield. Came out February 3rd, 1998. Oh, I remember exactly where I was when I heard the first music from this record. Um, Where were you when you first heard something off this record oh gosh i think the, the first song that i recall hearing off yield i want to say was given to fly it was not the lead single it was the lead single i, I remember hearing that and then all the all, all the uh, controversy over whether or not mike had ripped off jimmy page mm-hmm. and uh i just remember hearing the sound thinking wow this is this is really awesome very melodic and, and epic yeah, and I am um, these great swells of a chorus. And was it was it the actual single or was it the uh, that TV commercial that ran with the with the car and they they kind of faded it? And it's I don't remember the commercial. I don't remember seeing that in real time. The commercial I do remember, but I I don't I don't I remember seeing it. But the first song I really remember hearing properly was "Brain of Jay" because my buddy played the record and uh, the CD in his car when we went left left school one day. Um, so that was really cool. But anyways, anyways, uh, great show coming up for you guys. It's actually going to be a kind of a double week celebration of Yield. Um, this would give a good friend on to talk about just the album and what it's meant over the last 25 years, kind of dissect it from a kind of a vibes point of view. And the next episode, maybe the one after that, we'll have to see with the scheduling. Um, we will talk to somebody who participated in the making of that album. And... Uh, talk to them about just the recording process and the mixing process and the X's and O's and how that thing came together. Yeah, um, and, and this together. is where I have to interject and remind you, Jason, that them is a plural personal pronoun, but the, the individual you're talking about is him, and that's a singular personal pronoun. And this is very important because we're in the midst of an educational luminary right now. And I want to make sure <laughs> that we're not well, stepping in it Hey, you know what? It's 2023, <laughs> and if um, a trans woman can win a Grammy, then anything is possible. So <laughs> it's it's however you want to use a pronoun. I don't give a shit. Um, before we get to all that, though, and our friend who's waiting in the wings patiently, uh, as the VO said at the top of the show, please rev- uh, rate, review, subscribe if you can. Helps the algorithm. Helps the show find more people, more Pearl Jam psychos like us and you talk about this band and enjoy it um we've got patreon five dollars a month for a little extra extra judge extra uh content for you if you'd like to go the extra mile and a new t-shirt will be launching very soon as well patreon members have approved it so we're good to go there and we have two new reviews that i'll read at the end of the show that are very very cool so uh we'll get to that, all that stuff later but first let's bring them back in the good doctor the man of the hour <laughs> the man with the power Stip. 
Thank you for having me again, as always. Um, I remember exactly where I was the first four times I heard something from from Yield. The I think I have four times. Four times. The first four, yeah, four different like Yield starter moments. I have more wow. memories of Talk to me. this record than I think any other, even though it, mm. other than maybe Gigaton, just because that's the most recent and yeah, yeah. it had all like the the COVID feels attached to it. So I, I had some bootleg from 1995 where um or not even a bootleg it was one of those like $50 we just oh, pulled yeah. some random tracks from like other bootlegs that had one of the early live versions of, of brain of jay on it yep so i kind of like knew that song without any sort of context and then when i eventually saw a yield track looks like oh it's that song that was kind of cool there was the given to fly single mm-hmm. and i didn't really know led zeppelin then at all so i was not fussed at all by the going to <laughs> california thing which is i adore given to fly it's totally there um, I've, I've heard people deny it. I don't see how that's even possible. Um, then there was a K-Rock started playing uh, Do the Evolution before uh, before the album came out. And so I'd only known really uh, Given to Fly at that point. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, what the... No, it might have even been before. No, that was before Given to Fly. Oh, really? And it was. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what the fuck happened to Eddie's voice? Like uh, <laughs> in the like intervening, you know, years, the 95 bootlegs were really screamy. And I just like, like, did he just forget how to sing? Which was a perpetual feel I a fear I had, like post Vitology for whatever reason. And so it was a really like cool song. I heard it twice, but it was so much to to take in and process. And I and then Given to Fly came out, like, all right, here's a standard Pearl Jam anthem or like not like a standard, but like the the songs that I still really associate with the essence of the band. There wasn't really any track like that on no co- uh, no code. It's like, all right, phew, it's gonna be it's gonna be okay. Like whatever that do the evolution thing was, which is now my favorite song on this record, uh, you know, is a <laughs> was an outlier. And then wait, remember is it dry- now or not? Like I felt at the time, like okay, now it's an outlier. Like wh- no, whatever. Saying, do the- did you say now it's your favorite song, or no, it's not your favorite song? Oh, now it's my favorite song. Oh, on there the you record. go. Look at that. I just I didn't know what to make of it. I mean, that's not a that's not a particularly bold claim. Um, and then I remember driving to Bull Moose Records in Brunswick, Maine, when I was in in college. This wow. was February of my junior year in my 1994 teal mist Ford Probe, <laughs> buying the Yield cassette and CD. Ooh. Because I didn't have a CD player in my car. So I bought the tape just so I had it to listen to on the six-minute drive back to campus. Because that's the that's the <laughs> space I was in. And so and just listening to Brain of, uh, of Jay, and it's like, that was... And I think like three times on the way back, because it was, it was so good. It's like, I'm not even going to go on to the next song, and I'm just going to... Why, why you you were clearly not a philosophy major, Skip, because you learned nothing of the value and virtue of patience at that yeah, age. Seriously. So. <laughs> I, I wasn't a stoic. What was up with the... Uh, you didn't buy with like the little cassette thing with the cable that goes to the CD player? Why didn't you just do that? Uh, like, not yet. Uh, I... You know, that, that was me in high school, the, man. That was me. I had, the, I had the 1990 Jeep Cherokee, did not have a CD deck at all. So it was the, it was the cassette with the, with the cord to the disc man you know, i had one i had that disc man at some point maybe it wasn't college because i always liked making i liked making mixtapes and mm, i didn't have the, yeah. the technology to do like a cd player yet and so yeah. i just i liked having that in my high, high fidelity yeah. inspired me too <laughs> I, I stopped once i switched over to cds i stopped listening to release for years because it was like nine minutes to put on a 
a CD. And it's like, I, I couldn't justify like the, the four minute master slave. Oh, and you couldn't edit right. it at time. Yeah. yeah I, I, I couldn't edit it. Huh. All right. Well, you mentioned, <clears throat> pardon me, fog my throat. Um, you mentioned uh, hearing Brain of Jay early on. Uh, the first time it was played was November 2nd, 1995 in Salt Lake City. Um, let's talk about the album by talking about, um, by going backwards a little bit. So we'll start big picture and then tighten things up as we go. So we can't talk about this album uh, without what led up to the recording. Everything that came out of Vitalogy, No Code, and the tours that nearly broke the band up. So in... What ways do you guys think coming from this place led to the kind of music we got on Yield? Steph, you want to start? Uh, sure. I, I think there's there's two big influences, and one is they had just fought and lost so many fights. Mm. You know, I think with with themselves, you know, with their own public perception. Uh, the, the Ticketmaster thing, I think, especially what that did to to touring and just how difficult it was to be a functional band and just find places to play and do the things that you want to do. That there's this sense on yield of not not giving up because it's not that kind of of record, but of just letting go and saying, "I'm not going to to fight anymore." It's like we this l- language wasn't at least in my vocabulary, but yield this feels almost like a self-care kind of album like you know we've just been through the the ringer and want to be able to just take a step back and enjoy being musicians and you know playing with each other and i think that intersects in a really powerful way with the the daniel quinn influence on this album and i i discovered him just through the the like the 10 club references of vitology health club i think was what we were calling it back then and ended up, you know, reading him shortly after because of that, and was obsessed with him for years to the point that I was planning to go to graduate school to do my dissertation on him. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but that's and eventually you know, moved moved past it. But he's a a great entry point to a lot of really complex ideas, and he's all over this record. Not, I mean, there's only uh, there's a handful of songs where it's like a direct lyrical. Um, debt that's owed to him but the the vibe of quinn is like everywhere but we can we can go back to that later especially because i don't know if you guys have have read ishmael and i don't want to just you know lecture to you about it i have not read of ishmael but you can certainly lecture me it's when a, we get it's to a, it's more of the songwriting book. stuff paul uh you were going to chime in before i give the step as you as you rightfully should give him the platform to begin um our guest of honor you know, when I think of Yield, it's hard for me to not think of Yield without thinking of it in a post-no-code world. Mm-hmm. And I say that because when, when you look back at the tumultuous period that was no-code and the fact that the band was really starting to come unglued in a lot of ways, and, and Jack being the influence that he was to help tie them together at the time, what's interesting to me is that, you know, Jeff was quoted as saying in an interview that Eddie had essentially communicated to him that No Code was a lot of work for him. It was the first album in the Pearl Gem catalog where Eddie really took center stage and was was the driving directorial force behind the entire production. Uh, and it was a lot of work. 
And he had communicated to his bandmates that it would be wonderful. I'm going to quote Jeff here. Said Ed said, it would be great if I didn't have to work so hard on the arrangements and if people came in with more complete ideas and even more complete songs, that, that would really help me out a lot. And I think everybody took that to heart. So here, here was this, this shift in the politics of the band that we saw occur with No Code. And suddenly, to me, this is, this is the, the, the moment where Pearl Jam became a democracy. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it was a game changer for them, both sonically and within the integrity of the band as a whole. Um, everybody started coming in. Stone was writing music and lyrics as always, but Jeff had music and lyrics. And, and you know, we have Low Light, we have Pilot, we have other songs. Um, Eddie obviously had music and lyrics. And they essentially formed a partnership. They evolved as a group. Their their team dynamic had evolved. And they started writing together. And everybody had input. Everybody had a voice in this process. And Jeff said that he thought because of that, and I'm quoting him here, everybody feels like they're an integral part of the band. It's notable to me that before Yield, everybody may not have felt like they were an integral part of the band, that they may not have felt like they had a voice. And I think that uh, when you look at bands that survive the test of time, rarely is it a singular voice that's driving the process. You look at Smashing Pumpkins or, or even like a post-grunge band like Fuel with Carl Bell. There's so many outfits that when there's there's one person that's really controlling the situation, it leaves a, a, a void and creates an atmosphere of unfulfillment and creative unfulfillment. And, and I think that's what was happening with Pearl Jam. And Mike said that they had become rather passive aggressive towards each other. Or, sorry, Jeff said that. Uh, instead of realizing that they were all in this together. And you have to think about the era of what 1998 was. This was when post-grunge and Nickelback and all that stuff was really starting to emerge. And it was at a time where, I mean, the other contemporaries that they had uh, Soundgarden, I think, had w- was gone. Nirvana w- had ended by then. Uh, a- Allison Change had c- pretty much gone in, gone hiatus to a degree. And Pearl Jam was the they were the last bastions of the the Seattle scene. And it's hard to think about them absent the spotlight that had been on them for so long. And they were trying to pick up the, it was an identity crisis in a lot of ways. It was like, here we were trying to, to wear this pressure. And a lot of that manifested itself. You know, Stitt mentioned that the, the screaming on the bootlegs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, those performances were affected. And I wonder if that's why we don't have a lot of bootlegs from 1996. I wonder if that's an era the band would rather forget live. Uh, for Jeff to say, we get passive aggressive with each other. And some of the songs we wrote, and even in some of the performances, those things showed themselves. It speaks volumes. The performances line is interesting because, you know, we know about when they get to Chicago in 95 and, mm-hmm. you know, they do those, that, that big show, um, Soldier Field, and then they kind of yeah. go into the, uh, into the studio very quickly afterwards, but don't bring Jeff and he's kind of pissed about it. And it's, it almost feels like, and I, you know, I'm speculating, but it almost feels like Ed needed no code way more than the rest of the guys did. And he kind of separated him. He did it for his own sanity at the expense of the rest of the guys and let left them because he had taken, 
he had taken command, right, of the of the captain without realizing how hard this was going to be and what he was really getting himself right. into. So by taking c- control of of the band, in a sense, from from the end of the ten tour through Vitalogy through '95, um, doing the arrangements, um, finalizing the track listings, taking doing all those set list creation, and becoming that leader that Stone so graciously allowed him to basically be. Um, for the betterment of the band, the unit now, because of everything that's happening him with the stalker and the fame and yada, yada, yada. And he wants to kind of come into himself and hide and, and, and go to the note, go the no code route. I think the guys liked that idea to a degree, maybe not so much Mike. Um, and it was ultimately good for them to do that. But I think Ed did it in such a way that he separated himself from the rest of the band that had separated from the rest of music. And by doing that, he almost left a, a rudderless ship. And when you, when you take, it's almost like when you take control of a country and then that leader all of a sudden goes away, and you have that vacuum effect. It's like, uh, who's in charge now? And so everyone's just kind of like, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to be our own songwriters anymore, really, because we've kind of just brought in like a riff and let Ed kind of just, shape it and that was fine maybe i wasn't really fulfilled maybe i'm maybe i'm suppressing that who, kn- who knows what they were feeling at the time and then you get to that point where ed loses the ego gets to a place where he's comfortable and says to jeff as you said let's open it up i can't i just can't to have the awareness to say i need the help i want this this unit keeps me keeps me safe keeps me happy but we've got to rejigger how we do this and um, I wonder, thinking about the songs themselves now, what songs do you think wouldn't have necessarily made it on this record if Ed wasn't open to a more collaborative effort? Well, I think first and foremost, the song that you and Stip brought up, which is Given to Fly. Uh, I, I think that that's notable. The song about this guy who inherits somehow this ability to to fly and he wants to to spread that gift and he is met with you know derogatory vitriol and violence and and (laughs) you know i think ed called it a a, a fable at the time um this idea that music is a metaphor it's something and he's great at this in his lyrics music being this metaphor all the time for for something else in this case giving you this feeling of, of, of being airborne um but i don't see how that song comes to fruition with mike being such a driving force in the composition musically and, and eddie being able to write about what music means to him in a different way than what we saw with spin the black circle mm. uh I question whether or not that song is possible bef- be- without the shifting dynamic within the band. Steph, what do you think? What, what songs? What songs would not have happened if they didn't make that change? And by the way, I'll, I'll mention the the non Ed written lyrics on this album: "Pilot," "Low Light," "All Those Yesterdays," and "No Way." So four songs, big. Um, I think probably. Three, uh, I, um, well, that's a Jeff and a, a Stone. I'd say no way in pilot if I had to pick two, uh, with the caveat that I was just listening to that uh, 25th anniversary thing on on Sirius where Stone said that he thought pilot was going to be the big hit of the album, 
<laughs> really? Uh, apparently, in all sincerity. So I, I don't know what goes into any of their decision making after after hearing that. Um, but Pilot is it's it's a weird Jeff number. It doesn't have the potential stone aside, I think, crossover appeal that you could say a song like Low Light might have, which, you know, is a, a very pretty song and in the right the right moment could catch. Um, I think that's there just being comfortable making space for each other and other people's ideas, even if they're fairly far removed from the kinds of things that Pearl Jim had done before. And that's that's one of the songs that's the most outlierish, I think, on the record, you know. Bracketing that something like Push Me, Pull Me is wearing its experimental like ism on its sleeve as an exercise in in doing that. And we and saw some of that on Biotology as well, though, right? For sure. The Push Me, Pull Me. So yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. And Red Dot. And I think, <laughs> and no, yeah, which apparently uh, one of them didn't know was on the album. The other one in the interview, Stone and, and Jeff, said they hadn't listened to it in about 25 years, which is about right. Yeah. Uh, once every 25 years is enough. I, I really... That song bugs me, um, or or as much as an interstitial piece of music, you know, can and should. More are than you, are should. you saying uh, "Push Me, Pull Me"? No, no, no Red, Red Dot. Dot. Red oh, Dot. Red. Okay. No, Push Me, Pull Me <laughs> is, is, is fun. Uh, I think probably no way because there's, it's poking fun at Eddie's self-image, and it's a song that Stone wrote about him. That I think there's only room to to include and get away with if you've moved past that mm. passive aggressive phase that you've you've referenced earlier. Um, I mean, even just the idea of everybody coming in with their own, not only their own musical compositions, they've always been doing that. But I, I would say, like anything that that they provided the lyrics for is a, a product of of whatever came after No Code and that transformation. Because prior to that. You know, Ed's written ninety-eight percent of their lyrics. It's it's everything but mankind, which you could say Stone has the lyrics for because Eddie doesn't even sing on it. Um, so I don't know that there's any space for any of that. Um, you know, they're a band now with five songwriters, like five distinct songwriters. In any given album, you can expect to find at least one full-fledged composition from just about every member of the band. I mean, other than Mike not really writing lyrics, and I mean that's. Sh- shift happens on no code excuse me on yield on yield the other song i would say may not happen is wishlist not because of the um style of song that it is but rather the manner by which it was recorded so eddie said that mike had booked studio time in uh, a tiny studio here with their friend Stu behind the board and another friend on drums. And then Eddie said, uh, we don't have the discipline to sit down and teach each other parts. So you're writing simple chord changes that someone else can follow without having to take breaks to learn them. It was probably eight minutes long. Originally, I listened to the tape and picked out the better wishes. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that whole recording process, that uh, that collaborative effort of people bringing in different types of arrangements and, and it really becoming a, uh, a different dynamic as opposed to someone coming in with just for the most part, everything ready to go. I, I don't know if Wishlist happens if Mike goes into the studio. Who I, I think if Mike goes into the studio during Verses or Vitology with this, it's a bootleg or it's a, it's it's a hard to imagine type track where it's played in concerts but never really, you know, maybe it's on a soundtrack or it's a B side, but I don't think it's on an album. The recording of this 
and we'll touch on this again in more detail uh, in the next episode. But the recording of this was done, to my knowledge, very much in a live setting. Um, two studios in Seattle, Litho and X. Um, and so you've got these months and months of rehearsal. Obviously, we saw a lot of that filmed in single video theory. Now that you have this democratic process, the passive aggressiveness, passive aggression is is gone. It's opened the doors to to a different way to make a record. Um, and now you've got it where they want to record these things in a live setting. Um, I was reading something today, um, an Instagram post by, uh, I'm going to mess up his name, Steve, Steve Aber. Abertini, oh god, what's his name? The producer who did the who did in utero. What's Albini? Albini. Yeah, Steve Albini. Um, was talking about how there's two different kinds of perfectionists. There's the one who um, will practice and hone their craft for weeks and months and get every detail perfect so that when they're ready to go, it's they just do it. And then there's one, the perfectionist who tells the band, "Do it again." until they just magically do it the way that it's, it should be done. And it feels like this was definitely the former where the guys in not like a strict way, but where the guys ha- came up with their, came in with their pieces and they created the songs, but then they just, they rehearsed them and they rehearsed them and they rehearsed them and they rehearsed them. And so when they recorded them in that group setting, it felt like a band that was democratized, but, but a unit at the same time. Why why do you guys assuming that you do agree with the statement why do you guys think that the recording process was so important for the songs on this record and the band's chemistry I think I think it has a lot to do with Jack uh, Jack described in hiding as a a real band track like it sounded like five guys just played a track together and that's pretty much what happened like he literally described it as a truly collaborative process and that's what was missing, I think, in the way Pearl Jam composed songs in the past. So I, I, I think you introduce an element like Jack into this process. And uh, interestingly enough, there was a tour for this album where after Australia, he had to step away. Mm. But his, his, you know, his uh, contribution to the band, aside from the wonderful music contributions, is, is probably the fact that he, he was a stabilizing element when they needed it most. So it was interesting talking uh, or listening to uh, Stone and Jeff's interview from uh, from February first. They talked a lot about just the, how the level of comfort they had in the yield recordings also led. I think this is somewhat similar to them feeling like they didn't need to interject themselves into songs that they could just sort of let things play out organically and leave space for others and not feel like. They had this to is now themselves. my part, right? Exactly. Yeah. And my initial reaction to yield, and I still have this to an extent with with some of the songs, a "Faithful" and "No Hiding," or in particular, are the two that really jump out for me with this, where they've always felt slightly incomplete to me. In hiding, like, both both and hiding and really? faithful, where there's, I'm waiting for some other part to to <laughs> come in. Like they they feel like there is some kind of empty space that somebody is not filling compared to some of like the, the previous like you know huge rafter you know shaking ballads that they've now, done in the past Steve, do you feel that way be, be, because 
you think that's an inherent organic quality that's that that's that's not present within the song or like as it's it's a, a composition it's a work of art that did not fully realize its ambitions or is it the culmination of how you had previously experienced pearl jam's music up mm. until that point i mean it's definitely the latter it, it's okay. I'm, I'm not sure if it's also the former but when you think about um dissident or red mosquito or alive uh you know just to pick you know one from you know each of those uh records like you know corduroy um where those are busy songs even ones like you know dissident which is you know uh, incredibly melodic you can distinctly make out what everybody is playing at every single point you know they're well mixed and they're they're good songs so they're not necessarily like in competition with e with each other but at any given point like you know somebody is making a statement and you don't in hiding and faithful have a simplicity to them that they're not my favorite songs either and i don't know if that's because i think there's something unrealized in them or if there's something that i was you know looking for out of you know a big you know sweeping pearl jam anthem but it does speak to everything that you guys were talking about, you know, earlier with the recording process, where they were willing just to sort of be in the room with each other and be a band and let the song speak for all of them, rather than trying each of them trying to fight for space for their own voice within the song, if that makes sense. And I think those are two, you know, uh, two really good examples. You know, there are other songs you know on the album that are great like you know brain of jay or do the evolution where you know you, everybody is really just sort of playing hard and and playing together and everybody is present in a way that the song requires uh that you know felt those were the ones that i was initially drawn to because they were the ones that felt busy and full full is maybe the word i want to use in the way that those earlier songs well, did certain certain styles of rock and roll like like those two songs you mentioned are meant to be punchy straight ahead and kind of simplified right. you just you just double the riff on each side you don't need to complement it um necessarily um so yeah i would say in hiding for me has enough going on because mike is doing something a little bit more complementary to stone's main riff um He's not just kind of hanging out. Whereas I feel like in um like Wishlist or Elderly Woman or um what's another one where Mike just kind of hangs out? A couple of songs where he doesn't he just kind of does a little little fill here and there and there's not really too much happening from his standpoint. I I'd agree with you there. And I wonder if on those songs, maybe it was it was because Mike has said it in, in uh in regards to the yield era that he was a little taken aback by Ed or kind of not afraid of him, but like didn't really want to, didn't know how to approach. Um, so if a song was kind of, you know, 80% baked and he'd be like, oh, I don't really have a place to, to, I'll just put a little fill here. That's fine. That's fine. But now that everyone felt comfortable. We, we um, get, we get two solos on quick escape now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, two of them overlapping if you include jeff <laughs> i think um yeah i think that maybe when when ed's ego kind of went away because it needed to because he was feeling too uh, it allowed the other guys to feel more comfortable about their their place within the band and therefore their egos went away too and so to your point about you know the song only needing so much 
hey, I like busy songs just as much as I like not busy songs. I'm listening to the, the latest Dream Theater record, and it's freaking crazy. And this guy's just, rock. it's unbelievable how they weave stuff together. But like some songs don't need that. And I think they found a way on this record to be more complimentary and not to your point, Stip, trying to find their stamp on each song. And I wonder if it's, if it's that, that, that comfortability and not having to assert themselves um, that led to that. Paul, what are you going to say? I want to ask you guys a question. Uh, this is what Ed said at the time. He said, the mere fact that we survived made us stronger. We care for each other more. We trust more because we have had to, to endure. And I think maybe for the first time, we're playing up to our potential. Either when you first heard Yield or looking back on it now, do you guys regard that album as the first time Pearl Jam played up to its potential? No. No. Uh, if I, I think it's the opposite. Um, but uh, Jason, why don't you go first? Well, I mean... Potential, that, that's a funny thing because that we they showed their potential was what 12 million albums sold, mm-hmm. playing to sold out stadiums across the world for a year and a half. Yeah, fastest selling album of all time, and then second fastest last, selling album of all time. Exactly. I mean, Versus was the fastest selling or was the highest selling, I think, for what Fast, five years? Fastest to a million, uh, uh, five years. And then Vitology was number two. Yeah. So they they had. What they could do as a band, um, however you want to define as a band, because, you know, the songwriting uh, weights were not all equal. Uh, they fa- obviously they found their highest potential there. Now. What maybe. Was it Ed, you said that Ed, uh-huh. said that? Ed, Ed said what, that. what maybe Ed means is. Maybe they found songs that resonated at the right time um, with the right people greater than anybody could have imagined in those first three or four years. But as they've kind of melded together and their influences have come together and their trust has become stronger amongst the five of them interconnected wise as well, what they can pull together maybe hadn't been. So I, I, I said no, because so quickly because look what happened on 10 inverses uh, numbers wise you know quantitatively it it's it's there the proof's right there but to what ed is trying to say i feel like he's probably talking about the maturity of the band and what they f- feel are their favorite compositions as a group probably hadn't been made yet until that point because they all felt like they had equal stake in the success of a song as opposed to being like oh that's a that's a good it's a good stone song or that's that's a good ed song yeah i like playing it now they're all equally invested and i think that's what he means by that and i, I think i i mean I, I i i think all of that is 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 right and some of this might be just reflecting the stuff that i like the most about pearl jam but you know, I think Yield, for instance, is a, a. I think it's a better record than No Code. I like Yield more. Let me not say better record. I, I enjoy Yield more than No Code, but I do think certainly the the first three records and No Code don't feel comfortable in a way that Yield feels mm-hmm. comfortable. Good work. And when Eddie says, "Yeah, like there, there's work there," and I think Pearl Jam is 
at their best when they are in opposition. And I do think when they were in opposition with each other, it might have been a very miserable time to be with the band. We may not still have them today if they didn't get over this. And so I'm, I'm glad they went on the, this journey, you know, as people and then just as, you know, fans, we got another 25 years of music out of it. They, I think they pushed each other and pushed themselves because they felt that they had something to prove. And Yield is maybe the first time Pearl Jam is comfortable in their their own skin in, in a way that, you know, they're not on, they're discovering who they are on, on 10 in verses. They're clearly not on Vitology and No Code. And ever since then, whenever the band talks about how they play so so well together, how they're finding, you know, the, all of this potential within them, it feels like this is... It it, just, it, tra- it doesn't necessarily translate into the music in the way that I, I hear it as much as it's a reflection of how much they enjoy the process of playing with each other, how easy they find it, and maybe conflating that that ease with, um, I, I don't want to say artistry because that's not, that's not fair. I mean, they've done really, really great stuff together, but I, I do think their full potential is best achieved in opposition to something, whether it's opposition to the world around them, uh, which bubbles up in, in you know their best songs post-Yield, or opposition to the world and each other, which was a push-pull tension that you well, had in the early hell, records. Five against one. Mm-hmm. It's right there in the, the original title. So, well, and one could, uh, from a contrarian point of view, say that, well, they put out an amazing record and they were, in theory together against somebody as opposed to against themselves but i agree with you conflict breeds creativity right I and mean, that's kind of an age-old thing you have that friction you find a compromise that you maybe wouldn't have found if someone just got their way i mean i, I don't know if either of you have ever played music with somebody else before but well, well on so, that note good i mean to your point right necessity is the mother of all invention we had to endure yeah right so in many ways, uh, just to play devil's advocate, one could argue that uh, Yield was arguably their most creatively realized album in the sense that they, 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 the invention that was the Yield album came from the necessity to endure and to change and to evolve mm. in ways that they either couldn't or wouldn't or able weren't, weren't able to do before. And you have to obviously, you know, take that and apply the fact that time had passed experience had happened wisdom was was gained Mm -hmm. and so as you mature and you're you're you know hell just even just traveling for a week to to another country uh makes you wiser just it adds a, a layer to your life that you wouldn't have had before and makes you i think a better person because you see a little bit more of what life can be. Mm-hmm. And so these guys have been traveling and traveling and traveling and traveling. They've seen every part of this earth. They've experienced way more than anybody else has. Uh, any, anybody, um, any, any of their fans have, or, or any of these writers have. And so as they've experienced all this, yeah, they're, they're gonna, this could be that fruition. Mm-hmm. Your point. Um, now, Brendan O'Brien, the producer of this album said, the band intentionally made more accessible songs. And for a band that obviously didn't care what people thought when they released Vitality to a degree and no code, what made them want to kind of get back into the game 
as it were? Like, did did they did they miss it? Is that the the lack of pressure? They they finally didn't feel this. Pre- I mean, it, it's in the title, yield. You know, they 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 yielded to this need to be what others wanted them to be. And I think, given what happened in the landscape at the time with Alice in Chains and Nirvana and Soundgarden, et cetera, uh, they they felt more free to just kind of let go. Um, and so I, I think that that allowed them to not be so resistant to the idea that you know, this song has has a bit of a popular feel to it. This can't be on an album. <laughs> so you were talking about how they had to before we got to the very beginning they had to deal with all the fighting was it just the fact that they were just sick of of the conflict and it was exhausting or did they think that being in this band was better than not and the best way to stay together is just to make more accessible popular tunes is it is it too simplistic where does it where do you lie in that you know, I think when you're no longer the biggest band in the world, you don't have to worry so much about whether or not something is going to be a hit. And you can, you know, write, you can, you can put your better man on a record and it'll be nice that people hear your music. And I think this is maybe one of the first times when there's such a stark drop off between Vitology and No Code that they're like, oh, maybe we have to, and, and music culture had already started to move, you know, past grunge into like, you know, the morass of the late, you know, uh, 90s, that you probably did have to want to at least, you know, extend the slightest olive branch to <laughs> get people to listen to your your music. I mean, they made the the video for yeah. Do the Evolution. It's yeah. an aggressive, it's a great video, but I mean, it, it's an aggressive video, but it's still like an attempt to get you know, MTV airplay. They have a commercial with the car. The commercial. The yes, exactly. Um, they're going back to Ticketmaster venues. You know, there's a point in which it's like, you know, why are, who are we fighting for? Um, and why, what are these, you know, what who are these struggles work? <laughs> exactly. Like what are, what What's exactly that? is it that we're trying to prove? And so let's just, you know, follow, you know, our instincts, you know, write the songs that make us happy put out the things that we think fans are going to want to to hear and sort of, you know, make our, our peace with it. You know, it's interesting that it doesn't last very long because Binaural is probably their most obtuse record. Uh, you know, it, it's just two years, you know, in, in change right after this one. Um, you know, Riot Act is, you know, so lost and and desolate in its way. But there was this this moment where it's like, you know what, we're just going to, I don't want to say play the game in like a, a selling out kind of way, but just a recognition that we don't have to put barriers in front of us. Uh, you know, we can go along and just try to do the best that we can and not worry about fighting unwinnable fights. I mean, that's all over the record. There's never a, a point in which they fully embrace that philosophy on yield which i think is is part of its tension that's simmering below the surface and one of the things that makes it really interesting but i'm always like i always think of of yield as a response to like that great lyric in dissident like you know uh, escape is never the the safest, safest path, path yeah. and then the yield is like well what if it is and they i mean that's the like the, the thesis statement closing out the yeah you know the record and i don't I, they, I think they're asking it as a question and exploring that that space in a way I don't know that they'd ever they hadn't done before and you know arguably hadn't done since and they I think they're trying to live there and seeing how 
seeing how it feels. Like, you know, d- does this fit us? I think the answer they ultimately decide is kind of no, at least in terms of the the themes and scope of the music, but yes, in terms of their dynamics with each other, uh, which is why they were able to, you know, last for another 25 years afterwards. So here we are. We're 25 years later. Quickly, Step, I'm going to ask you just to name, name these three songs because um, Paul and I have spoken before about underrated, overrated, and essential tracks from this record. So if Gun to Your Head, Lightning Round Style, what is the most underrated song, overrated song, and the essential song from the record? Uh, underrated is Wishlist, which is a fucking masterpiece that does not get the credit that, that it deserves. <laughs> okay. Um, overrated um, in hiding. Uh, wow. which is Get I off think, this podcast lyrically <laughs> musically it's nice lyrically it's a pretty vacuous song that has a, okay. a really good pre-chorus um and essential i mean given to fly is one of the most essential yeah. you know pearl jam tracks i mean i'd also accept do the evolution i, I might throw <laughs> i'm giving you too much of the album i might throw burn of jay under the uh underrated Oh. Just because it's amazing to me how rarely it gets played and how much it would kill if they did. Oh, that's so good. Um, <laughs> but I've never been in a conversation with like a, a, a serious Pearl Jam fan where anybody has slagged on Brain of, of Jay. And yep. there are yeah, people no, who just don't like Wishlist, and I, it baffles the mind. <laughs> All right, and the final thing really quick is, what is the biggest takeaway from this record now that we're 25 years removed we talked about we started this whole thing about when we first heard anything off of it we've talked about what the record has meant from the transition of the previous three or four years and kind of how that created the songs that it created you met you joked about the, the uh, jeff and stone hadn't listened to red dot in 25 years <laughs> you know we're 24 quarter century from that album coming out and we're much different people than we what we were than who we were at the time, how does this, how does this, if someone says to you, what is yield now that we're 25 years older, what, it, what is yield? Take us home, Stip. What do you think? All right. Let me, um, I, yield is, I think Pearl Jam's, oh, it, it, it's not a cynical record at all other than do the evolution, but it's the only time I think in their entire catalog, other than maybe Riot Act, but that's so bound up with the specificity of 9-11 and mm-hmm. the Bush administration that that is very clearly a moment in history in the way that Yield isn't, where they actually start asking the questions, and this is some of the, the Daniel Quinn stuff, like, what if all of our institutions are fundamentally flawed? What if we can't just sort of fight our way into a better world through sheer force of will because the whole Mm. thing is broken? Where does that leave us? And where does that leave a band with Pearl Jam's, you know, fighting spirit, which is a really dark question. And I think there is a very dark undercurrent to yield that people often miss because the songs don't present that way. And you have to look for it, but at least I think once you see it, it's, it's there um, you know, what if uh escape is the is the only path? Um they never adopted that conclusion again. Even on a record like, you know, Riot Act, which is generally, you know, held to be, you know, one of their most de- you know depressing or binaural, like, you know, the most trapped and claustrophobic, there is a sense of people still 
fighting, even if they don't think they're going to win because they don't know how to do anything else. Like, you know, the, um, you know, the, the refusal to give up, even when you, you know, so desperately want to yield is the only time they really walk away. And I'm not trying to make a difference. I stopped trying to make a difference. Yeah. Right. And it, 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 it's everywhere. Like all of the, the given to fly in hiding, I wish um, I was. I wish I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I it, I exactly. You know, it, it kind of like after given to fly, you know, they the and and faithful maybe, you know, the the real like powerful, like, you know, we can transform the world message songs are gone. And they're all, you know, like major key, you know, bright, you know, summary, you know, warm songs. There's a real warmth to yield, but like underneath it. Uh, you know, MFC, you can go straight on down the list. You know, you don't even have to linger too long in the the near nihilism of Do the Evolution, which again, one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs, but the only time they ever attempted to inhabit that that headspace. The rest of Yield is really a critique of the idea of what Pearl Jam was mm. prior to everything given to, before given to fly, um, you know, on that record. And then almost Everything you know that follows afterwards, binaural and riot act, they're still trying to process what they're going through. I think they sort of you know make their peace with it with uh, the avocado record, and then you know since. But that that starts in yield, and in some respects, it has its, its purest uh, distillation here, and it, it's completely unique in the catalog. I think for that reason, even twenty five years out, they haven't gone back to that idea. Oh man, um, I'm curious what the listeners think about this record. It's uh, some people's favorite. I know I have a, a couple of friends who think it's easily their best. Um, I can see the argument. Um, again, Paul and I won't reveal that until we finally end this show. But um, it's uh, it's one of my, I think, one of my favorites right now, at least, just because you know when I when I kind of got back into the band, and I say that because you know when I when I first got into the band it was 10 it was jeremy on the radio i was i, I was 10 years old and the verses came out like all oh, these songs are great too and i remember when vitalogy came out i didn't hear anything on the radio outside of better man and a friend of mine told me that oh it's kind of weird you might not like it and so i just kind of said okay and i didn't really listen to it and when no code came out all i heard from any friends was like this isn't pearl jam it's like it's like weird and slow and soft and i go oh, i don't want to listen to that so i kind of like gave up sort of and then when I heard Yield, I go, ooh, Brain of J is really cool. Faithful's kind of fun. Given to Fly is huge. Dude, the evolution is fucking crazy. And then I saw my first show that tour. And then it it reignited, right? So for me, a lot a lot of a lot of this record is the rebirth of Jason as a fan. Obviously, I went back and learned to love Vitalogy and No Code a lot. But this album is so important to so many people. And I, I'm curious. You guys out there, what you guys uh, think of this record then, now, how it's changed your life, your favorite track, you're underrated, you're overrated, you're essential, all those things. Because um, it is, you know, we've done like anniversary type shows before. We talked about Riot Act a few months ago with Brendan, um, Brendan from uh, uh, Better Band. But this one feels a little bit special. So curious what you guys think about it. Let us know in the comments. Um, we will move on now, though to our Lyric of the Week. All right, so this week, obviously, we're going to pick from Yield, and we're picking 
pilot. Pilot, this is its uh, bridge. Jeff Ament has written it. Uh, Paul, what have you got? Uh, this song I didn't find to be the most accessible when I first heard it. So it wasn't I, the uh, smash single that Stone thought it was going to be? Uh, no. Uh, okay. But <laughs> I, I've always been tickled, though, by this idea that you, you are stunned by your own reflection. And it, it's the reflection that sees you too clearly. This idea that there, there's something you're hiding from. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, you're forced to face something that you didn't want to see. And, but it's that reflection that reminds you of what it is you're running from. Um, not unlike a friend that politely drags you down, down, down. Um, and it, it, it's that, uh, that, it's that politely drags you down. I've always, friend. <laughs> exactly. uh, because we've all had a friend like that. Right. And, and sometimes that friend is us. Um, so I, I, I the, the self saboteur, so to speak, uh-huh. quality of, of pilot I've always found to be interesting. And, uh, personally, I mean, I, I find this particular set of lyrics in the song to be the most profound. Uh, it, it's the set that I enjoy listening to the most. Um, so this is the one that, that really stuck out this because i think we're going to see a lot of this throughout pearl jam's music in subsequent records this I swore i'd never go mm. there again and and that that fight not only for self-preservation but in the service of something very personal as opposed to what stip had talked about before which was us against the world yeah the um when i first heard this song i i did kind of like it because it was it was kind of different and unique but um, these lyrics definitely were the, were the best in my opinion as well. And it's that mirror effect, as you said, um, whether it's an actual mirror or, or probably in this case, a reflection from a body of water, it's, it's a timeless metaphor because it doesn't lie. As you said, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at yourself, there is no hiding there. There are no lies there. There is no way to escape, no path to escape. And I think sometimes we look at ourselves in moments of vulnerability and recognize our true selves. And it can be scary if we're in a weakened place mentally or emotionally. And if we're unsure of what our next move is or who we really are, the reflection will force us to confront it. And there is no way to avoid it. Uh, Much like the message in the last line there, uh, if you get pulled under, you must fight to get back to the surface. It's instinct. It's innate. There's, there's no overthinking it because your instincts have to take over. And to go back a line um, to that, and I swore I'd never go back there again. I believe Jeff or his character is trying to say that they didn't want to face that reality again because it's scary. Because the last time they faced this truth, it showed them something they didn't want to see. And, and that may have been justified, you know, say if parents are fighting or there's abuse or whatever you don't want to look into your eyes and be forced to reckon with seeing your parents in yourself and having those memories kind of flood back but sometimes reality is like that and as ed has said many times before there are some issues problems where you can't go around or over them you have to go through them 
And I think Jeff wrote this one, but it speaks to Ed's point really beautifully. And he's made that point, Ed has, not just then, but over the years, and even on this most recent tour. So while it's a Jeff song and, you know, we kind of poke a little fun at it because it's, you know, it's kind of weird and quirky. Yeah. Jeff is a vibe. Jeff <laughs> Jeff certainly is a vibe step and but I think I think these lyrics are, are really freaking cool. I, I don't I don't know if you have any extra take on it. It's a, I mean it's Pilot is is a song I've I've grown to appreciate more and more as I've I've gotten older and I've been more comfortable just approaching songs holistically and got over like my younger just resentment of the fact like well, this is a cool set of music that Eddie could have written lyrics for instead of having to try to <laughs> parse out whatever like pilot I've got a dog means. Um, you know, there's it's in the whole song, but I think you really get it in the the bridge bit that you picked out. Like this feeling, this sense of of unfinished business, of you know, premature conclusions of somebody who had maybe just made everything a little too pat for themselves a little bit too too quickly or did something terrible that they regret you know later you know jeff had said in some interview somewhere that you know like the image he has in his mind is you know pilot sit pontius pilot sitting on a mountaintop somewhere after having given the order to to execute jesus just sitting there with his dog thinking like man that seemed like a good idea at the time but like you know what the hell have i done and there's there's elements of that in in pilot that you do get. I mean, it's jarring with the chorus, but you do really get it in the verses and the bridge. Yeah, the uh, I love the idea of the sitting there with the, with your dog and just being like, "Shit, what the hell did I just do?" But then <laughs> that chorus banged in is very stark. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, well, you know what? We've got to do it because we got to do it. Let's go find out what the best version of this thing is with our live cut of the week. Ready. Live cut of pilot. Uh, there's 33 of these things, and there are enough of them from uh, around the time that we can kind of pick one out from close to its release. Paul, what are we, what are we gonna do? I like August 18th, 2000 from Indianapolis. Talk Talking out of turn, 
So uh, this one, you know, for a song that's not been played very much at all, like I said, uh, this one sounds pretty tight. I will say, um, I think Jeff and Mike especially sound quite good in it. Mm. Uh, the only thing for me is there's a little hitch getting into the bridge, but that seems to be a common occurrence. The later you go in their career with the song, the less yeah. they play it. Um, and I listened to some of the other uh, cuts from that 2000 tour, and there's always something else that's that's not quite right with it. Um, and I think w- the key with this song, though, is that Ed sings it the right way, in my opinion. He sings the um, the verses well. He sings the chorus in the upper octave where he does on the record. Um, he didn't do it on the few cuts we get from the Yield tour. Um, and by the way, those Yield cuts are all audience recordings and only one yeah. of them is even remotely okay. Um, and he has to, I, I, it's dumb, but. He's got to sing, obeys, listens, kisses, loves. Got to do that. I, I got to hear that because it's just, it makes me chuckle every time I hear that line. And it reminds me of hearing the song for the first time back in 98. So I know it's unique. I know it's quirky, but it's fun to me. And he sings, it's a, it's low in the mix, but he sings it. And that's, that's always got to be in there for the best cut for this one. So that's why I like it. Um, Paul, why did you choose this one? I just think that it's very well executed. This is one of those songs where it had nothing to do with audience participation. I was looking for just very, very solid execution. For the most part, all of those bootlegs from Binaural sound, in terms of mixing, sound roughly the same. Um, It just comes down to performance. And so of all the cuts that we have of this particular song, I don't think there was a finer performance to date. All right, there you go. Deer, was it Deer Creek? Deer Creek Amphitheater? Yep. God, it's probably changed. Uh, Deer Creek Music Center. Noblesville. I guess that's some sort of suburb. Um, probably probably changed four times since then, <laughs> as other venues have. All right, there you go, guys. That's the episode. Um, Stip, thank you for uh, for staying up late again. No, my pleasure. If I could just plug something really quick. Please do. If you go over to uh, theskyiscrape.com, we've started our annual March Madness tournament. Today was the first day. Ah, yes. It runs through April, early April. So there's plenty of time to to get over there. If you uh, go onto the website and then quick, uh, click on the forum, you can find it there. The Red Mosquito Forum. Uh, younger Jason spent way too many hours having discussions with people. March Madness, guys. Oh, I, lo- I love If you click, by the way, forums on skyscrape.com and you, you scroll down underneath the forum thread titles, it says March Madness 2023, Stip equals God. Which I 100% <laughs> did not put up. That's uh, that's almost certainly uh, B, the guy who oversees the whole mess. 
Well, before we go, I wanted to read, um, I mentioned it at the very top of the show, I'm reading two of our newest reviews on the Apple platform. Uh, this one is from DDC. The title is A Must Listen for the Faithful Five Stars. This show is a combination of one of those niche college courses on a band or a musician you wish you could get into but can't, <laughs> mixed with conversations you have hanging out at a place with your friends who come in from out of town the night before a show, getting each other psyched up like the next night was going to be your first show all over again, and simultaneously scaring the neighbors away who you invited over to have a drink because they have no idea why a group of people have so many thoughts on a band. This podcast is a beautiful representation <laughs> of what this community is all about and why we really do have the best fan base out there. Paul and Jason do a remarkable job and it's a really it's really a treat to listen each week. These gentlemen always have a spot at our table the night before a show if they're ever in Philly. Let's scare the neighbors away. Woo! That's awesome. <laughs> that was a, a really the, the the first half I is a great description of what you guys do. <laughs> that was great. Thank you, DDC. Um, and there's one more from Sean Patsy. It's a little bit shorter. Uh not that that wasn't great. Must listen for hardcore Pearl Jam fans, five stars. Jason and Paul perfectly express the fandom of the most hardcore Pearl Jam fans from across the globe. The debates and thoughtful insight on the popular hits and deepest cuts revive the passions of the faithful horde in ways that no other pod or show could. They are entertaining, funny, and passionate. I hope this pod exists as long as Pearl Jam for at least 30 more years. Paul, can we do this show for 30 more years? Good Lord. Uh, what do we talk about? Uh, <laughs> that's, step, that's, that's, you got to start making room in your schedule, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That it is. We're just gonna have uh, Stip just read forums. <laughs> oh, well, many well, thanks to all of those folks. Yeah, for doing what we need them to do, which is feed the algorithm. Yes, it, it is a joy to read those reviews. We really, it really appreciate is. it. Like Paul said before, you could just put like a period or like an emoji, <laughs> and that would be fine. All we're just trying to make that algorithm spit it out to more people. That's all we're looking to do. Um, but you guys are great. I pre really appreciate it. And uh, we will uh, continue this yield conversation hopefully next week, maybe the week after, with someone involved in making of the record. Holy crap. Um, so until next time, you have been listening to The State of Love and Trust. Love and Trust.